Uh, do you ever talk to inanimate objects? Uh, I do, <laughs> and it might be a little weird, but um, I talk to inanimate objects usually in the extremes. It's either something that's really good or something that's really bad. Um, when, when I start to talk to something that doesn't actually have life, um, sometimes it's things like vehicles. Anybody name vehicles that you're particularly fond of? Yeah, my, my first car. Um, her name was Amy, and I hope to not offend anyone named Amy, but um, Amy's in my life have tended to be feisty, and so I just thought it was suitable. Um, and my, my favorite motorcycle had a name. If there's things that I loved, I tend to name, and um, that's just something I do. I don't know if you do that as well, um, but I'll talk to it, like, you know, if, like, Hang in there. Come on. You got this. Things like that. Or on the other extreme, when things are not going well, um, I feel like I'm making myself very vulnerable here um, because I am just very clueless when it comes to a lot of technology, like the internet. Um, one day, Pastor Alex was sitting at a computer with me and was trying to explain how the internet works. And he was talking about packets moving and different things. And I was totally lost. And then he really freaked me out. Like, I thought that people were going to come rappelling out of the ceiling because he took Google's website. I closed my eyes, and I looked back, and he has somehow changed it to where my name is there. I was like, you're not allowed to do stuff like that. But he did. I don't know. Um, that stuff freaks me out. But what, what that means is in my own home, when it's up to me to figure out what's going on and fix the issue with technology, like when the Wi-Fi goes out, ah. I expected to hear a lot of just gasping around the room. Maybe it's not so frustrating for you, but it's like, how many times do I turn this thing off and turn it back on and unplug it and wait so many seconds and hold the power button for so many seconds, like all these things and nothing's working. And next thing you know, I'm screaming, what is your malfunction? Like it can talk back to me and um, it can't, it can't. And it's probably good that it doesn't for my sake at least. But it makes me wonder, why do we talk to lifeless things? Things that have no ability to talk back. Um, and speaking of lifeless things, we're ready for a hard downshift. What power do we have in the face of death? When something is lifeless, when someone is lifeless, what power do we have to change that? And, and like, you know death because it is the great enemy. It is the last enemy, Scripture says, of humanity. That it is not natural and yet it is natural. That everything in us wants to fight that. We want to fight the aging process. Um, culturally, we like to hide death. We have specific places for people to go to die. Um, less and less is death something that occurs with a lot of loved ones. More and more it becomes more secretive, secluded. But just death is such a terrible thing. And what power do we have over it? And so we need to take that into today's text. Um, we're continuing our series, going through the Gospel of John. If you will turn with me to John chapter 11 in your copy of Scripture. John chapter 11, we'll start at the start of this chapter. But John chapter 11, remember, we've been going through the book of signs, kind of the first half, if you will, of John's Gospel. And so in the book of signs, Jesus is performing sign after sign to demonstrate his power and authority. And they're typically coupled with a claim that he makes. So look here in chapter 11 of the Gospel according to John, starting in verse 1. It says, Now a man was sick, Lazarus, from Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. And it was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. And so really quick, just to fill you in on some stuff, because if you've been reading through the Gospel with us, you may be like, wait, what? Uh, who was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume? Because I, I, I somehow missed that part. 
Um, John wrote his gospel years after the other gospel writers, so he already had Matthew, Mark, and Luke in circulation, and John often writes with the assumption that you're familiar with those gospels. Um, that is a story that is included in the other gospels and is not included in this one yet. And so um, that's kind of beautiful, the way that he just weaves this in and out and helps us to see. He is very intentionally orchestrating things because he wants us to see something profound here. And so to, to give us context, I don't know if I did something, I'm sorry. <laughs> to give us context, that was my deaf ear and I heard it in it. That was cool. <laughs> <laughs> to give us context here, he's saying this is, this is who it is. We have characters, we have Lazarus, we have Mary and Martha, who are the siblings of Lazarus, and Jesus, who's getting this message from the sisters, Lord, the one you love is sick. So we know that Jesus loves Lazarus, and these sisters have some kind of trust in knowing Jesus can do something. They want the message to get to Jesus, that, hey, Jesus, the one you love, Lazarus, our brother, he is sick. They want him to know that. And so some other things that we need to know just from this, from the names, Bethany actually is house of suffering. The word Bethany, the name Bethany means house of suffering. So word comes from the house of suffering to Jesus. And it's, hey, the one you love is sick. And what's crazy here, and we don't know exactly where Jesus is, but if you go back into the end of chapter 10, he departed across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing earlier. And we know of two locations where John had been baptizing. You want to guess what one of them was named? Bethany. So there's another Bethany across the Jordan. And so consider that. We don't know for sure, but consider that, that Jesus is in a place possibly of the house of suffering, receives word that someone from the house of suffering. And so from house of suffering to house of suffering, this message comes, the one you love is sick. And Lazarus, the name Lazarus actually comes from the Hebrew Eliezer, and it means God has helped. So this man is sick. Jesus loves him. A message is sent to Jesus who is across the Jordan. And why is he across the Jordan? because he had to get out of Jerusalem because the Jones were trying to stone him after the last sign that he did. And so Jesus, under threat of death, has gotten out of this place, and now word comes from back on the other side where the danger is, and says, hey, the one you love is sick. Lazarus is sick. And now look at verse 4. When Jesus heard it, he said, this sickness will not end in death, but it's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then after that, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. That should raise a lot of questions for you, as it does for me. He says, this leads to the glory of God. And this leads to the Son of God being glorified. So which is it? And it's both. Jesus, again, is putting himself into the position of God. This Actually, this sickness is going to lead to the glory of God. This is going to make the Son of God glorified. Like, is it one or the other? You know, it's both. That Jesus is going to be glorified in this. Jesus, the Son of God, God himself is glorified now. But here's the thing. Here's the tension. Do we see adversity? Do we see suffering as an opportunity for God to be glorified? I struggle with that. When suffering comes my way, I want to be comfortable. I want to be secure. I want to be safe. And so my natural inclination, when I know that some bad circumstance is about to take place or is taking place, my natural inclination is not to think, God, this is so good, you're going to be glorified. And yet, that is what Jesus is claiming here. So how do we make sense of these things? That Jesus is loving these two sisters, he's loving their brother, and yet Jesus decides he's going to stay for two more days after hearing this. 
Like if you get a message, hey, hey, your, your good friend, the one you love, is really sick right now. It's not looking good. And you say, oh, okay. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to chill here for a couple days and then I'll head over there. Like, is that loving? It, we, we don't think, we don't feel like it's loving. That doesn't seem loving. So how do we reconcile Jesus loving them and deciding that he's going to stay for two more days before he heads over there? It's because he could see adversity as an opportunity for God to be glorified. He could see beyond the discomfort of the situation. He could see that God's glory is actually tied to our good. That Jesus was truly loving them and doing something that did not look loving from our perspective. Because he could see that actually it is our good that God would be glorified in these bad circumstances. But again, like we, we have to be honest with this text. You have to imagine, put yourself into the position of one of these sisters. You're Mary or you're Martha. Your brother is dying. He is sick. And you send word to this man that you have watched do incredible things. He has healed lame people. He has healed the sick. He has given sight to the blind. He has done amazing things. And you're like, we know he, we know he loves us. So get word to him fast. Like, run with everything you've got. Go get word to him. And that messenger comes back and is like, I told him. I think I heard him say something like, we're going to chill for a couple days. You imagine being Mary or Martha, waiting in that, wondering, why? Why is he not, why is he not coming? What is the delay? Why would he wait? Why would he cause us to wait? Let's look at verse 8. Rabbi, the disciples told him. Because Jesus now, after two days, has said, we're going to Judea. We're going to go back across the Jordan to where the danger was. Rabbi, the disciples told him, just now the Jews tried to stone you and you're going there again? See, they, they seem to think like, well, we know why he's not going. Like, yeah, we, we all love Lazarus, but they're trying to kill us. So we get it, Jesus. Yeah, let's stay here for a while. But then Jesus is like, no, 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 we're going. We're going to go over there. Wait, why? They were trying to kill you. And you're going to go there again? Verse 9, aren't there 12 hours in a day, Jesus answered? If anyone walks during the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks during the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. The disciples were afraid. And I can certainly resonate. If people were just ready to throw rocks at you until you die, and you get out of there, I'd probably not be too inclined to go back. Jesus says, we're going back, and they're like, why? They're trying to kill you. And Jesus gives this seemingly weird response about light and walking and stumbling and darkness. But again, we have to remember this in the context. Jesus had just called himself the light of the world, remember? If Jesus is the light of the world, and now these disciples are afraid, Jesus is responding to their fear, reminding them of this light theme and his claim to be the light of the world. In other words... Hey, when you walk in light, because, hey, you're with the light of the world, you don't need to be afraid of stumbling in darkness. In other words, you don't need to be afraid right now. He's contrasting their darkness, their disbelief, their confusion, their hurt, their fear with his love and trust and sovereignty, his light. So look at verse 11. He said this, and then he told them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm on my way to wake him up. Then the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll get well. You know, that's generally how things work when you're sick. 
You go to sleep, and your body is able to, to work and fight the infection. You start to get better. And so they're thinking, well, it's probably good that he's asleep. He's, he's going to get better when he wakes up. Jesus, however, was speaking about his death. But they thought he was speaking about natural sleep. So Jesus then told them plainly, Lazarus has died. I'm glad for you that I wasn't there so that you may believe. But let's go to him. Then Thomas, called twins, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too so that we may die with him. Oh, he's dead. He's not just sick. He's not just asleep. He is dead. Lazarus has died. And Jesus knows this. He has not been there yet. And yet he knows off the message that Lazarus is sick. The one you love is sick. And yet Jesus now knows he is dead. He has waited additional days. He knows that he is dead. And now he's making it clear to them. And he says that he is glad for their sake. Again, what? Jesus said he is glad that one of his friends that he loves has died for their sake? And why? How can he still be loving? Because this is tied to the glory of God, and the glory of God is tied to our good. He said, so that you may believe. Do you remember that statement from when we started this series? That John, in John chapter 20, as he's concluding this gospel, he says, this is the purpose statement. He explicitly says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The same language, so you may believe. This is why Jesus is glad that his friend has died. He loves him. He genuinely loves him. And he also loves these others. And he wants them to see something here. For their sake, he is glad. So now they can believe. And then you have Thomas, who makes this offhanded comment. And this has been interpreted multiple ways. Um, we don't know for sure. Like Thomas says, let's go too, so that we may die with him. And we don't know, is Thomas actually talking about Lazarus, who has died? Is he talking about Jesus, who they think, mm, you were already about to die, now we're going to go back, and you're going to die, let's die with him? Is he speaking sarcastically, or is this actually in great profound devotion coupled with fear? I mean, how beautiful would it be if he's like, you know what, at least we'll die with him. But we don't know exactly what he's saying there. And so that still should kind of leave us in this state of like, what? What is going on? And now, continue on verse 17. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, less than two miles away. Many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them about their brother. As soon as Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Then Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. He's been dead for four days. And this is significant in the ancient Near East, particularly amongst the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. They had a commonly held belief that a person's spirit was somehow tied or around their body for three days before it would leave the body after death. And so now four days, anyone would say, yeah, this is, this is absolutely a done deal. He is dead, dead. This guy is dead. And yet Martha expresses beautiful belief she doesn't even wait for Jesus to get to the house. She hears that he's coming and she runs out to meet him. Oh, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. And that's beautiful faith. <laughs> even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That is to be commended. And I look at Jesus' response in 23. Your brother will rise again, Jesus told her. 
Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. And so Martha has responded to Jesus saying, yes, I know this. There's this general belief about a resurrection of the dead that is being affirmed, but this is more specific. This is more. Jesus is saying, this is his next great claim. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Jesus is making such a bold claim here. And then what does she do in response? She affirms again the perfect statement of John's gospel. She says, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. She believes, and this is what leads to life that Jesus is saying that he is. Now, look what happens next, 28. Having said this, she went back and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. As soon as Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw that Mary got up quickly and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to cry there. As soon as Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and told him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Just like her sister. Full confidence that if Jesus had been there, he would not have died. And 33, when Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying, he was deeply moved in his spirit and troubled. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, couldn't he who opened the blind man's eyes also have kept this man from dying? She's crying. He's crying. Everyone around is crying. We're all crying. And some actually start to doubt and question him. They're doubting and questioning him because they could not see two things to be true at the same time. They could not see how Jesus loved Lazarus and was able to prevent his death and yet didn't. Couldn't he, who opened the eyes of the blind, who healed the sick, couldn't he have stopped this? I mean, he loved him. Why wouldn't he have stopped this? I, I heard the other day, they said that they sent news to him days ago and he waited. He waited to come. How much could he love this guy if he waited and could have stopped all this. He could have prevented this. They couldn't see how these two things could be simultaneously true. And then Jesus, at the same time, he's weeping because he could see two things as being true at the same time. Jesus is actually crying. Spoiler alert, he's gonna raise Lazarus. He's actually crying, though, knowing he's about to raise Lazarus, but also genuinely feeling the real pain of his loved ones around him. The real pain of death. Jesus, God incarnate, is feeling it. And this is so significant for us to know we have a faithful high priest who can sympathize with us. He knows what it is like. We talked about this so much at Christmas, but like, it's just mind-boggling to think that the God of the cosmos, eternal, unbegotten, he is forever and has always been God. And yet God, in the person of the Son, came to us and took on human flesh and forevermore will have scars in his hands. That in his resurrected state, he ate breakfast with his closest friends. He talked to them. He still has this body. 
There's a mind. There's emotion. And in this moment, he's here with his friends, knowing what he's about to do. That this is, this is going to be good for them. He knows that, and yet he can still be present in the moment and cry with them. And this corrects our distortions because um, we tend to fall on two ends of a spectrum, that we either feel nothing or we get stuck in our feelings. And Jesus, as truly God and truly man, this hypostatic union, fully God and fully man, he shows us the perfect human. That Jesus, as the perfect human, he cries. He genuinely feels this with them. But he doesn't stay stuck in that. He then takes action out of that. And so maybe you need to actually be honest with how you're feeling. I've shared this before. I did some leadership coaching some years ago, and, and one of the guys coaching me, he asked me at one point, he's like, well, how do you feel about that? And I responded immediately, well, I think, I, and he said, stop. I didn't ask what you think. What do you feel? Why can you not feel things, Kevin? And we need to be honest that we are humans and feel things. And then how beautiful is the ministry of being with others and genuinely feeling things with them. And so as we look around and we welcome others into the church, can we put on their lens for a moment and say, how would it feel to walk into this room? And say, I want them to feel like they belong. and They're known and they're loved because that's what I feel. And so how can I make that feeling that I feel felt by them? And you apply this in every scenario to be genuinely with people, to feel it. And Jesus shows us the beauty of this. He models this for us. Look what happens next. 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Remove the stone, Jesus said. Martha, the dead man's sister, told him, Lord, there's already a stench because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? The stench of death is real. I don't know if you've been around death. It's been four days. And Jesus is like, hey, go ahead and let's open this thing up. I want to get in there to him. And Lazarus' sister is like, I don't want to make this. I don't want to make this even more uncomfortable, but we're all going to be hurling. Let's be honest. Our eyes are already watering because we're crying. You really want to have that scent assault us? He's been dead for four days. He's decomposing. The Jews did not do the like mummification stuff of the Egyptians. They would try to mask the odors by just covering and coating the body in spices and herbs. This guy has been dead for four days. He's decomposing. This is not going to be pretty. Jesus was deeply moved again. The Greek word that is translated as deeply moved is a word that can actually mean to snort in anger like a horse. So you imagine this scene playing out. Jesus has come after an intentional delay. And so this is actually going to be for your good, guys. I know you don't understand this. But so you can believe. He's dead. He comes here knowing his friend is dead, his friend that he loves. And he's like, take me to where you have him. They take him to a cave, and there's a stone rolled in front of it. And he's like, let's, let's get that thing out of the way. And his sister's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> he's been dead for four days. It's going to smell awful. Like, let's just pay our regards from here. But Jesus deeply moved. You imagine Jesus looking at this cave. 
deeply moved that word meaning. Imagine Jesus mad. He is infuriated. And so imagine he's gone from crying to now his eyes are locked on to this focal point of this door of death. And he's looking at it and snorting like a horse full of fury. He is mad and he's ready to fight. Why is Jesus mad? Because this is the ultimate enemy of all humanity. This goes back to the garden and our rebellion, our sin. The curse is you will die. Death is coming for you. And Jesus now says, I'm at the door of death and I'm not happy about it. I'm mad and I'm ready to fight. He's angry. So now watch what happens as Jesus reminds Martha, she knows what she believes. It's time to see it. 41, so they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd standing here, I said this so that they may believe you sent me. After he said this, he shouted with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, bound hand and foot with linen straps and with his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, unwrap him and let him go. He's ready to fight, but it doesn't look like much of a fight, does it? It's three words. He calls him by name and just says, come out. And what does Lazarus do? This dead man who's been decomposing for four days, he comes hobbling out, wrapped up in a sheet. This is weird. And she's like, let him free, guys. Lazarus comes out. This is the seventh sign in the Gospel of John. And seven is a significant number in the scriptures. This goes back to the creation narrative. that on the seventh day, it is completed and God rests. Seven is a number of completion, perfection. It's a culmination. This sign, the raising of the dead to life, is the culmination of Jesus' claim that he is the resurrection. He is the life. This is the power of the word of Christ displayed in a simple command. Lazarus, come out. The dead come to life and come walking out. This is amazing. There is no big ritual. There is no pomp, no circumstance. This is just a simple command that with great authority, that is unmatched, Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. Dead man, come to life. Come walking out of there. Can you hear the words of Jesus saying to you, by name, get out of the grave. You're not dead anymore. Come out here and live in the light. Come with Jesus. Do you hear the words of Jesus calling you to life? Sinner, Hear him, turn from your sin, you're dead, but he brings you to life. Amen. Believer, are you acting like you're dead, wallowing around in a grave, still stuck in your sin? Can you hear Jesus with great unmatched authority saying, hey, I'm calling you by name, get out of there. Come walk in life and light. This is our salvation. Jesus is the one who can pull this off. He's the only one. This sign points to the greatest wonder that Jesus would ever pull off. As he resurrects his own friend, he's pointing to the fact that soon he will be resurrected. He says he lays down his life and he has the right to take it back up and he will. In the next chapter, he records Jesus saying, as for me, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. He said this to indicate what kind of death he was about to die. That Jesus says, if I am lifted up, Meaning, if I am crucified, if I am raised on a cross, if I am murdered, you know what I'll do? I'll draw men to myself. When it looks like darkness has won, when it looks like the enemy Satan has won, when it looks like evil is prevailing, then actually that's where I'm going to call dead men to life. 
This is, this is our salvation. This is the gospel, the good news, that in faith we come to life. And the call of the gospel is to believe that Jesus has died. He died the death that you and I deserve, and he rose again victorious over death. He proved it. He showed he would do it. He did it. And now he does that for us, bringing us into life everlasting with him, that we can walk in life with Jesus. This is eternal life, and yet it is here now as well. That we turn from our sin, we confess him to be Lord, we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, and the promise of scripture is we will be saved. So admit, you're a sinner. Know it. Confess it. And turn from it. Repent and turn to Jesus who loves us and he died for us and he's calling us to follow him into life forevermore. He believed that he died. He rose again. And he said, if this happens, I'm going to draw him into myself. Here's the thing, that, that word draw some of you made fun of me earlier. I forgive you, but I was fidgeting with these just because I had something in my pocket, which is fun. These are magnets. And sometimes when I hear that word draw, I think of the magnetic draw of things. Like there's, there's a draw of the magnet, and so you get another metallic object or something, and you get them close enough, and you can start to feel the draw until ultimately, click, gotcha. And now I'm not letting go. And sometimes that's how we can think about Jesus and this, this idea that he's going to draw men to himself. Like he has this kind of pull. Like if you get close enough, it's just going to, oh, gotcha. That is not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is think of a bucket and you have a well. And you throw that bucket down into the well. And what do you do to get the water out of the well? You draw it back in. You know what that bucket cannot do? Not come back. So it's coming back with a long rope. <laughs> Watch this. That is the word Jesus is using. Like you draw water from a well. You cast that bucket in and you draw it back. Not just like some ethereal like, oh, I'm, I'm going to get you. Like if you get close enough. No. Jesus is coming, and he has come, and he is drawing men to himself, so can you hear him calling you today, and maybe you're going to bang against the side a lot on your way up, and fight and everything, and it might be a little heavy, but that is nothing to the creator of the cosmos, he's drawing men to himself, because he wants us to be with him, he wants us to experience life with him, and so can you hear the words of Jesus speaking to you as he spoke them that day, when he said to the sister, do you believe this? Do you believe this? That Jesus can do this. That Jesus is doing this. And he will do this. That he's drawing men to himself. Can you believe Jesus? Can you hear him speaking to you when he says, Lazarus, come out. So are you dead in your sin? Then come out. Because Jesus is life and he brought life for you to be alive and to be with him. Come out. Come to me is what he's saying. You come from the grave and to Jesus and are you acting like a dead man? Then come out of the grave. Jesus is life, and he brought life for you to be alive and to be with him. Not to keep messing around like we're dead men stuck in graves, bound up in cloths. Oh, Jesus is life. He's calling us to live among the living. One of the most beautiful things that I wrestled with this week in this text is this Jesus has all of this audience around, and he pulls this off. 
And what does he tell the audience around? Some of whom were questioning. Mm, does he love him? Could have stopped this. Does he love him? Jesus tells these very same people, hey, help. Go take those things off of him. Free him. The church, can you hear that? We get to be a community of people who as dead men come to life. We get to walk in obedience and say, all right, let me help you. Let me walk into freedom with you. Let me help get that off of you. Let me bear that with you. Let me free you of that. Hey, I've, I've been there. I remember what that was like. Let me tell you how I got out of that. And all the while just saying, most important thing, let's just keep going to him. Him being Jesus. Let's keep our eyes on him. Let's keep walking after him. The one who brings dead men to life. So skeptic, seeker, stumbling or doubting saint, can you believe this good news? Will you believe it? Right now, respond. Next week, we're going to baptize someone. You want to be baptized? Do you want to tell the world, this is my salvation, that I have died with Christ and I'm being raised to newness of life? And I want the world to know it. Well, let's do that. The follower of Jesus, who can you share this good news with? Because we get to walk in life. Life is the purpose of this book. Remember John's purpose statement. These are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. It is life that is eternal, but it is also life now. Do you experience that? Life right now with Jesus. It was a rough week. You may have had an amazing week. I didn't. It was pretty rough. But in all those rough moments, the beauty of the gospel is that God is with me. I have every reason to delight in him, to enjoy him. But I can get stuck into this, this just ongoing routine. Like, my profession is to teach you about God. To convince you to believe in God. To convince you to be obedient to God. All these things. I can get stuck into thinking that and forget, no, this is why I do this. Because I get God. Because I get to enjoy God. That life is eternal, but life is now. In the words of Jonathan Edwards, he said, now what is glorifying God but rejoicing at that glory he has displayed? An understanding of the perfections of God merely cannot be the end of creation. For he had as good not understand it, but to see it and not be at all moved with joy at the sight. Neither can the highest end of creation be the declaring God's glory to others. For the declaring God's glory is good for nothing otherwise than to raise joy in ourselves and others at what is declared. But there's a way at which we can talk about godly things. We can engage in godly things and totally miss God himself. What a tragedy. When Jesus says, no, I came that you would have life. Eternal life, but that life is now as well. One day, it's going to be fully realized, and that day is not yet, and yet we have glimpses now. And we see them in moments like Jesus calling forth the dead. We see them in moments like when Jesus called me from the dead, and when he called you, believer, from the dead. We get to experience him, to enjoy him. So will you experience him? Will you enjoy him? to know that you are loved, to know that you're forgiven, to know that you are his, to enjoy God himself. He's with us right now.
we started our gathering with Kristen saying, let's pray. Come, Holy Spirit. And we know he's here. And yet we get to posture ourselves to say, I want to meet with you. So I want to spend a few moments. And we're not going to be crazy, but you can be expressive. Because he's real and he has given us life. I said, would you just enjoy him for some time? And they'll start some music here soon. But if you need to just pray, pray, talk with him. Enjoy the intimacy of fellowshipping with him. That his spirit is in you. If you need to repent, that's where you need to start. Confess sin. Trust him, confess him to be a mighty savior. And just delight in him. Let's raise our voices. Let's raise our hands. Let's posture ourselves physically if you're able and not be embarrassed or ashamed, but just to say, God actually asks for his people to do these things in the Psalms. You can clap. You can get on your knees if you want to. You can lay down if you want to. But just enjoy God. If you haven't had some time to do that this week, let's start now. Just enjoy him and consider the life that he has brought for you.